Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Uh, my name is Gavriel Hakoan, and I am here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. Anything else, Sadie? Anything else you want to say? There is so much to say in this episode. I just didn't feel that I needed a clever introduction. No. Okay. Well, today, this is going to be a big one because we are talking about evolution versus creationism. Bam, 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 bam. It's Why do big... we not have a soundboard with like those sound effects yet? Yeah, We've know. had a podcast it's... for an entire year, Gabi. This it's is like the... this is your realm. This is like the the big mainline event, man. It's like evolution, creationism, two titans entering the ring. Only one can leave. That's what we're doing today, right? That is what we're doing today. And I'm really excited because in the first half of this episode, I think I'm going to get to enlighten some people about exactly why evolution versus creation is so important to Christians, especially Christians who take the Bible literally. The Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. Uh, We seek to educate and to inform our listeners about the dangers of this cult, you know, other cults, fundamentalism in general. We seek to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. 
And if you like this show, uh, you can join our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. You can go join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, which is super fun. And anything else that we got to say before we really get into this? And we're going to just try to get right into this because this is a big issue. This is a big episode. Uh, nothing comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, so we're doing, uh, like I said before, like I've said in the past few episodes, uh, we're doing our back to school series. So we're doing all of these like sort of education themed topics. So we're today, um, we are talking about science. We're talking specifically about evolution. So I wanted to ask Sadie, because uh, this has come up a couple of times in the past, but I wanted to ask Sadie specifically what were you taught about evolution? What were you taught about creation versus evolution? And what were you taught about, you know, people like Charles Darwin who came up with this theory? So I was taught that the question of how the earth came into being, how the universe came into being and um, the, whether the earth was specially verbally created by God or whether it evolved is absolutely foundational to Christianity in general. The the logic for this, and we're going to get super deep into this in a minute, is if we can't trust what God says literally about creation, how can we take the rest of the Bible literally? Like so if the is, first chapter isn't literal, how is any of it literal? So this is all based on like this idea of biblical literalism. Which which is a thing that we talk about a lot. Um, but I would but in general about evolution, I was taught that it's a theory. And when they say theory, that's because they can't prove it. And we have proof that creation is the thing. And that proof is called the Bible uh, because we can take the entire Bible literally because we can take what God said about creation literally, which is kind of an instance of circular logic. Now that I say it out loud, how can we take the entire Bible literally if we can't take creation literally? We can take creation literally, and that is why we can take the entire rest of the Bible literally. This is literally just circular logic. Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot of, of circular logic. The further you go into fundamentalism, I think of really any religion, uh, the, the further fundamentalist you go, the more likely you are to see a lot of circular logic. It's just self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. But I was taught that, that evolution is a theory uh, because they can't prove it. We have proof, and that proof is called the Bible. Uh, I was taught that the Big Bang Theory is absolutely ludicrous. It's just, it's laughable. It's funny. We had funny songs to make fun of it. So I was taught that the Big Bang Theory was absolutely ludicrous, that evolutionists believe that the Earth evolved over millions and billions of years, which I was, as I said in the dinosaur episode, I was taught to laugh at and take very, take almost as a joke as like, oh, that's crazy. That could never possibly happen. I was taught that modern people, people who believe in evolution in modern times, whether they know it or not, being used by Satan to mislead people, because if we can lead people away from believing in verbal creation, uh, it is very easy to become an atheist. I was not really aware that there were any Christians who believe in evolution and also believe in God. And I was taught that the whole thing is a lie from the devil, because if you come to a belief in evolution, then 
you are pretty much going to become an atheist pretty quickly after that. And I want to say one more thing about the the term believe in evolution. Yes. We got a message from a listener. Um, it may have been, that may have been in Sam's message. Sam sent us a super cool message about um, Lucy and anthropological stuff. That was, that was really neat. Whichever listener sent us a message, a message, they said, you don't, evolution isn't a thing you believe in. It's science. It's like, like you don't believe in vaccines. You don't have to be like, there's not a belief factor. It's just like a thing. And I get that. I, I do understand that that's not a correct term to say believe in science or believe in evolution because it's not a belief. It's a scientific thing. Uh, but that is the terms that I would have used in the IFB. And those are the terms that are still kind of stuck in my head. So I wanted to mention that's why I'm using those terms. But that's, does that give you an overview of how I was taught to think about evolution in general? Yeah, well, it's just, it's just the sort of mental framework that you were that you were given, right? And a little bit of the programming too, of like, well, if you see millions and billions, you can automatically discount it. If you see Darwin, you can automatically discount it, and kind of going from there with that, that those kind of programmed responses in my mind. Well, it's also the same sort of thing where, like, we were talking about when we were talking about dinosaurs a couple of weeks ago. So creation, you know, they the creationists they have an answer for everything. That's it. Like, yeah. The, the scientists are like, well, we think 250 million years ago, uh, it, but it could be, you know, 5 million one way or the other. Yeah. And our young earth creationist type people take that as, oh, see, they're not even sure. They just think and we know. So they, they sell their beliefs on, yeah, on the premise of certainty, which to be fair, certainty is a lot more fun than uncertainty. It feels really good. Like to feel like you know you have the answer. So, so that's what you were taught about evolution. So evolution is a theory. It's wrong. And they don't know. But we know because we're created. So what were you taught about Charles Darwin? So I was taught about Darwin pretty much the same thing as I was taught about any scientist who believes or furthers the theory of evolution. That he probably didn't know. Like he probably wasn't demon possessed or anything. He didn't know that he was a tool of Satan. But that ultimately he was probably the greatest tool that the, the greatest person who's done the greatest amount of work for Satan ever uh, because he led millions of people against God with his wow. godless theory. So some people will say like, oh, he was demon possessed or, oh, he, was, he had sold his soul to the devil and he did that on purpose. And then other people would think, um, no, he was just he was misled or he was possessed and he didn't know he was possessed. Uh, but he didn't do it on purpose, but still uh, the devil used him to doom millions of people to hell through the belief in evolution that leads to uh, atheism. Well, did you end up with any of these like uh, character assassination conspiracy theories that you end up with? I don't recall any. Really? Okay. Yeah, hmm. I don't I don't really I don't recall anything specific about Darwin off the top of my head. Why don't I take this time to uh, do a little background information, give a little background information on Charles Darwin. Is that cool? Yeah, let's do a little primer on Darwin. And then when you get done with that, I will fill you in on anything that I did or didn't know about. So Charles Darwin uh, was born in 1809 to a wealthy British family. He was well-educated. He studied medicine, natural history, arts, biology, entomology, and in 1831, he was recommended to the post of naturalist on the ship, the HMS Beagle, which was going on an expedition to survey the coastline of South America. 
And part of this voyage included the Galapagos Islands, which is an archipelago off of the coast of Ecuador. So Darwin was raised Unitarian, uh, baptized in the Anglican Church. So he had been well versed in creationism. Uh, but when he visited the Galapagos Islands, he saw some things that really made him question what he had been taught. So there were many species of plants and animals that only live on the Galapagos Islands and live nowhere else in the world. And Darwin was curious as to why that was, because these species were perfectly adapted to living on these islands. The HMS Beagle spent five weeks at the Galapagos, and Darwin spent that time studying and cataloging all of the native species that lived there. And the Beagle's voyage lasted five years. And so when Darwin returned to England in 1836, he continued his research for several decades. Um, and in 1859, he published a book that would be the foundation stone, basically, for the theory of evolution, which was called On the Origin of Species. Darwin's theory was that the creatures living at the Galapagos Islands were well-suited to living on the island because they had inherited traits from their parents that made them successful. And a creature that is more well-suited to its environment is more likely to survive and to reproduce than a creature that is not as well-suited. So over many, many years and many generations as they go by, the positive traits uh, that give the ancestors opportunities you know, to get they give their possessors opportunities to produce more offspring will be passed on, and the negative traits that are a disadvantage will not be passed on because their possessors will not produce as many offspring. So this is the basis for the theory of evolution. So contrary to popular belief, the question that Darwin sought to answer was not where do people come from or why do humans kind of look like gorillas, but it was why do some plants and animals only live in certain places? And why do some places have plants and animals that are unique to those habitats? Okay, so some of that is news to me and some of that is not. So the the concept of it's, he wasn't seeking to explain the existence of, of life on earth or of human life. He was trying to explain why some plants and animals live in certain places and why did the habitats and the things that live in that habitat match up? That yeah. part was new. Uh, what I did already know is you explained, and I don't, you have to let me know, or maybe our guests later will let me know if this is the proper term, but you can, you explained a concept that I have heard referred to as microevolution. <laughs> is that a term that you've heard? Is this, do I sound uh, completely yeah, off the I'm wall to you? I, I think I may have heard it. I, I'm not a, a scientist or anything okay. like that. So I, I don't know. Um, so we're going to get into this in a minute. Yeah. In the second half of this episode, we have somebody coming on who actually knows about this stuff. Who's going to answer a bunch of Sadie's questions. That's going to be really good. But creationists refer to two different types of evolution. Um, some creationists do. Microevolution versus macroevolution. So the idea that an animal that lives in the desert that needs less water to survive and maybe has a way of storing water in their body like a camel does, will the, the animals that have those traits more strongly will live longer in the desert rather than die and they will produce more offspring. So those traits that cause them to need less water and have a way to store water will become dominant traits and eventually the, the whole species will be better at those things and more adapted to live in the desert. 
that is what at least I've always heard referred to as creationists as microevolution. So the same idea of breeding species of or types of dogs, they they believe in that. So so creationists don't believe that Noah took a husky and a chihuahua and a Datsun and a beagle on the ark. They believe that Noah took a wolf on the ark and then later people domesticated some of the descendants of that wolf and bred those descendants for certain traits like speed or hunting ability or a certain type of coat. So they do believe in that. What they what they don't believe in and what they'll make very clear to you that they don't believe in is one type of animal changing to another, like a reptile becoming a bird or like well, like an amoeba becoming a one-celled organism thing and then that turning into a fish and then, then fishes becoming reptiles and reptiles becoming birds. That's what they what they don't believe in. Yeah. Okay. So, or I guess you would say, or like a monkey becoming a human. Is that or, the one or, that they're yeah, big on? The, or the big one, a monkey becoming a human. So let's get into, let's get into a little bit of why evolution is such a big deal for Christians who are strongly anti-evolution. Because I think when you and I had a brief discussion about this, I think it may have surprised you a little bit that the reason why these roots run so very deep. So I mentioned in the intro to this episode, the whole idea is, well, if we can't trust the Bible to be literal and correct about evolution um, or creation, how can we trust the rest of the Bible after Genesis chapters one and two to be literal and correct? We've talked so much about biblical literalism on this podcast, and it's the idea that there was a literal global flood that covered the entire earth and Jonah was a real person and he really got swallowed by a whale and that every character in the Bible was a real person and the events in the story went down exactly the way the Bible described it. And when the Bible says, don't do this thing or don't do that thing, it's a, those, those are supposed to be rules, like hardline rules. If the Bible says, don't do this thing, don't do it. Uh, it's not a principle. It's not an allegory. It's not an analogy. It's a rule. Biblical literalism is really the foundation of the IFB and other Christian fundamentalist movements. And if you pull one of the dominoes out, then the whole chain breaks. Then Exactly. In order to believe all of the other things that they believe about, oh, that's what I was going to say. This is why the King James Bible debate is a huge freaking deal to these people. Because they're going to take, they, they call it an every word Bible. They believe that every word is, is true and meant to be taken as literally true. Well, if your translation is bad, then you can't take every word as literally true. And that is a thing that can crash their belief system. If you'd like you said, if you take one piece away, the whole house of cards kind of falls over. This particular form of bit- biblical literalism therefore, must include the belief in a literal six-day creation 6,000 years ago. They believe it was six days because in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Um, So they believe that it has to be 24-hour standard days the way that that days are now. The 6,000 years thing comes from uh, going through the biblical genealogies and adding up the Adam was so many years old when he begat Cain, and Cain was so many years old when he begat 
Jubal, I think Jubal is the is Cain's son, and Jubal was so many years old when he beget. And they go through and they they add up in the book of Numbers, you know, X beget Y, and Y was 128 years old when he beget Z, and Z was 84 years old when he beget. So they they literally add up all the way through the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament, and and they add up that genealogy, and then they add in the genealogy of Christ that is included in Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter one. There is a genealogy of Joseph in Matthew chapter one and a genealogy of Mary in Luke chapter one. So they go and they add those up and cross-reference those with the Old Testament genealogies that are provided. And they come to uh, 6,000 years since Adam. I thought it might be interesting to know exactly where the the 6,000 years comes from. And so any evidence that like is against that. So how are you going to react to that? Are you going to, you're going to either like just look for a reason to discount it or you're going to like point and laugh. So how young earth creationists handle claims that evolution is true is they either just say that's ridiculous or they look for scientific. And in some cases I should probably say pseudoscientific ways to try to produce equal evidence for creation. Creation scientists, and I'm going to use that term because that's what they call themselves, and I don't feel like creating a new term on this podcast right now. Uh, Creation scientists have really not been able to come up with evidence that even they can claim proves that creation is true and evolution is not. What they have been able to do is come up with plausible plausible explanations for things found by evolution scientists to say, well, you say that this is how, so you say that fossils were made because of arid environments where organic material did not decompose quickly and instead was replaced by, by different types of stone and then was compressed over many, many years in layers of stone. Creation scientists say, Uh, fossils were made by the Great Flood because many things died at the same time because there was a global flood and 99.9999% of life on Earth died. And uh, the pressure of the waters of the Great Flood pressed down on that organic material and dirt from the flood was deposited over it. And that's how we get fossils. So they, they are not, they don't really claim that they have evidence that proves evolution wrong what the tack that they have taken is claiming that they have evidence that is just as good as, or they have explanations that are just as good as the evolution explanation for things. So I want to go back, though, to another reason other than biblical literalism, why this is such a personal topic for people who do believe in young earth creationism. A lot of our listeners may have heard anti-evolution songs like you can't make a monkey out of me. And while that song is objectively hilarious, there's a real clue there about the creationist's point of view. See, when I hear the name of that song, you know what I think of? What? Uh, you know that episode of The Simpsons where they have the Planet of the Apes musical and uh, with Troy McClure? Yes. <laughs> and they have the song, you'll never make a monkey out of me. Like... <laughs> It sounds really yeah. similar to that, actually. Yeah, I, you know, I so looked I don't it know up who and I plagiarized who. You know, I think I think it's important to point out here that this is like another case of 
creationists either deliberately misrepresenting the concept or misunderstanding the concept and then saying that it's fake because they the idea that they've got is wrong because the idea isn't i i think that we evolved from monkeys the idea is that humans and apes have common ancestral species so the species that evolved into monkeys would have split off from us like 20 million years ago and the species that evolved into orangutans would have split off like 15 mir- uh, million years ago and the species that involved that evolved into gorillas would have split off like 8 million years ago and the species that evolved into chimpanzees would have split off like 6 million years ago you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. so so there are two things there are two parts of the creationist point of view on this The first one is that they believe that evolution was linear. So this, this species split off here and this this other species split off there. I, this is literally brand new information to me. I just figured that out like this week. Um, I was under the impression that, so there was an amoeba and some of them evolved and became fish and the ones that didn't evolve stayed single celled organisms and plants. And then there were fish and some of the fish evolved and became like grew legs and became reptiles and the fish that didn't evolve stayed fish. And then there were some reptiles and some of them got super evolved and got out of the water and became amphibians. And some of them didn't evolve and they stayed reptiles. And then uh, there were all these reptiles and amphibians and some of them evolved and became birds and got wings. And then some of them didn't. And they stayed where they were. And then some of the birds evolved and became land animals. And then some of the birds didn't evolve and they stayed birds. And then some of the land animals evolved and became monkeys. And the land animals that weren't as highly evolved stayed dogs or wolves or lions or whatever. And then the monkey, there were this this whole tribe of monkeys. And then some of them became super evolved and became humans. And some of them didn't evolve and those stayed monkeys. So that's... But that's not it at all, no. apparently. So, like, so like they don't believe that, like, birds ever became land mammals. Birds split off from, like, the evolutionary tree and became their own thing and then evolved into chickens and eagles and pigeons. But, like, you can see why they would think this because they look at humans. They're like, yeah, humans are, like, the peak. Humans are the, the peak of, of, right. of evolution. So, they basically, they believe that humans had... So creationists believe that evolutionists believe that humans are just like the the part. So they believe that that humans share a much nearer common ancestor with plants and fish and reptiles and birds and land animals and monkeys. That's when I I don't think that's how evolution people believe at all. Now that I'm kind of looking into this a little bit. No, and, and that I mean that uh, that wouldn't make any sense though, because that would mean that like every species alive today evolved from a different species that's also alive today. That's what I'm saying. That's what. So, huh? Yeah. So when creationists say this is ridiculous, that is what I was taught. Well, that is ridiculous. Believes. Yes. So it's so easy for me as a teenager to go, yeah, that's ridiculous. Of course not, and then just discount evolution in my mind and not want to learn any further about it. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense though because okay. so I mean, I'm about it, to so I'm about to blow your mind like two more times. Okay, go for it. So there there is point number one. So the the creationists get kind of up in arms about. So how dare you say that I have that I came from a fish? How dare you say that I came from a bird? 
that's not the truth. God made me out of the dust of the ground. God made me special. God endowed me with a soul. And I am the unique species with dominion that is supposed to rule over the earth. It's ridiculous to say that I'm supposed to, like, you can't say that a monkey is my grandfather. That's another term that they'll use a lot. Sorry if I triggered anybody. I listened to the song. But they'll say, like, well, how can you say a monkey is my grandfather and then say it's okay to keep a monkey in a cage in a zoo? You wouldn't keep your grandpa in a cage at the zoo, unless it was Grandpa Simpson, in which case you might. <laughs> but that's like, so it's, it's, an, it's an insult. It's a God made me a human and humans are special. Humans are the only ones deserving of heaven. Humans are the only ones deserving of a soul. And you can see, of course, how that ties into abortion because of the the belief that God personally, uniquely, and manually endows each human with a soul. But they'll say, well, I'm the only one with a soul. You can't say like souls can't evolve. How can you say that I came from animals? That's an insult to me because you're calling me an animal. Wow. So, okay. So there, that's, that's half of this, but I want to Mm. point out something that is that is probably going to blow your mind a little bit more. Okay, so this is two for two. You're two for two right now. This is going to be another one of those Christians believe what about Passover? Yes. Situations. Oh, God. Oh, okay. God. I'm bracing myself. Yeah. I imagined you doing the sign of the cross, and then I realized, like, no, no, that's not sound it. That's not what he's doing. <laughs> so, so I've talked before about how the Passover lamb is seen for Christians as an archetype of Christ. How all the temple sacrifices from the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are supposed to be messianic prophecies. So the bird means something and the sheep means something and the goat means something and the red heifer means something and the bread sacrifice and the wine sacrifice means something. And those are all supposed to be predictions of Jesus in like different forms. I think I've also mentioned on the podcast how some Christians believe that the high priest Melchizedek was Jesus making an early appearance on earth or maybe an angel being an archetype of Christ and predicting the birth of Christ. No, this has definitely not come up before. Well, I might have to get into that one another time, but I'm sure that I've discussed the idea that basically the entire Old Testament is full of Easter eggs. See what I did there? Easter Uh. (laughs) predicting Jesus. Yeah, I mean, which basically amounts to, like, weird readings and influencing just, like, an aggressive predetermined retcon, which is, like, why 80% of Jews think that you guys are kind of nuts. But, yeah. We're going to need to do a whole episode on that. But I feel like I should give my one sentence take since we're on the topic. And, of course, I said one sentence, so I mean one paragraph. The Bible, but here's my take. The Bible is full of truth. Almost all religions and cultures have the concept of sin and redemption, damage and retribution. So I think that theoretically Christians could probably retcon just about any story to show our values and our view of sin and redemption, damage and retribution. I have heard the story of Cinderella used uh, as an analogy for Jesus to say that Cinderella is the humans because she's dirty and she doesn't have anything to her own name, but Prince Charming is Jesus who swoops in and saves her and the glass slipper represents salvation and God's rep- God's righteousness. Who is the fairy godmother then? And who are the all the Holy Spirit, animals? I think. What? This is wild. This is this is <laughs> nuts. I I So mm. So I don't find it I don't find it ridiculously inappropriate for Christians to See the story of Jesus reflected in the Hebrew Bible because themes of redemption 
are everywhere. We can see our story of Jesus reflected in a lot of places, any place that there's a theme of redemption. But I think there needs to be an element of decorum because we need, Christians need to realize that the Hebrew Bible is not our story to just do whatever we want with. It has become a part of our story. And that's not, like, we can't go back on 2,000 years of church history. Even if I up and decided that I thought that the Hebrew Bible shouldn't be part of Christianity's story, there would be literally nothing I could do about it at this point. It's, you, we can't return that to its original owners at this point because things have gone too far. But I think that we need to be really careful with how we treat that. I, I cannot say that I think the Hebrew Bible is an inappropriate source of inspiration for those who follow Jesus. But I don't like the concept that we have to take and keep and appropriate it in order to follow Jesus at all. I think that's, that is a reasonable place to draw a line. Is We do not have to make the Hebrew Bible all about us <laughs> to follow Jesus. I, I think it's okay to find inspiration in it, but I think that that needs to be done with the idea that this didn't belong to us in the first place. But, uh, and I'm sure you, you may have a, a different thought on that. Um, and that's, I totally respect no, that. That's, totally that's all that's right. Just kinda that, my, I mean, that's kind of my take as a Christian. I feel like your take's pretty, that that's pretty all right, you know? But back to why creationists get so up in arms about the creation story. One of the other things that Christians think is an archetype or an allegory about the eventual redemptive death of Jesus on the cross is, of course, the creation story. Do you know the Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Yeah. Hark the Herald Angels mm -hmm. Sing, Glory to the Newborn. It's a good one. So one of the later verses that you may or may not have sung in choir has the lyric, Second Adam from above, reinstate us with thy love. So Adam, I didn't know that, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's it's right at the end of one of the later verses of the song. So Adam is in Christianity a type or a prediction of Jesus. So basically, Adam, it's in the book of Romans. So as by one man Adam death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam was supposed to be like the perfect type of the first man, but he wasn't divine, and he it all up. So 4,000 years later, Jesus had to come fix it. So Jesus is meant to be like a reflection of Adam, second Adam from above. So if you say to a Christian who believes this, that humans were not specially created, if you say that we evolved, you're messing with the entire structure of Christian belief for those who take this whole thing very literally. So hmm. that's, these are some of the deep-seated reasons why people are so serious about this. Wow. I didn't even know that, but that is, that is serious. I wow. think that's something people wouldn't know, right? No, that people, why would people know that unless they were like deep into this theology? Right. That's, um, those are some reasons that this is so like such a, a big thing, because I think that, that people who, I'm sorry, I don't, I just don't know the right word. So I'm just going to say believe in evolution. I think people who have that viewpoint are sometimes perplexed by how angry creationists get when the topics of all all animals and all humans descending from the same original living things on earth is brought up. I've seen that people assume that creationists are angry because their religious beliefs about the origin of life are being contradicted. But that's not really the case. They're not just mad because you're saying that they're not correct. That would be, that would be a little bit petty. The anger is 
coming from this much deeper place of number one, if the creation narrative in Genesis 1 is not real and can't be taken word for word literally, then I can't trust anything my holy book says. And number two, if humans aren't created in a special, unique way by God, that undermines my entire view of salvation. So it attacks every point of their religious view. I thought this was an important distinction to make because I think our listeners who were not raised in this young earth creationism, biblical literalism world, they may not understand why these beliefs are so foundational and why the young earth creationists get so up in arms when they're challenged or threatened. It's not just that they're mad that they're being challenged. There's a whole extra part to this. So Christians don't seem to know how to reconcile a non-literal creation narrative with their belief of scripture. The belief in scripture has been so strongly drilled into them. The belief that humans are special and ordained by God to be something more than an animal through the possession of a soul. So if someone deconstructs that belief, it's possible to reconstruct a Christian belief around a new a non-literal creation idea, and it's certainly possible to still stand Jesus real hard, but it involves a complete makeover of an entire belief system. And of course, it requires, by definition, the incorporation of higher criticism, which is, you know, the boogeyman. Wow. So this is also a bit of a thing that I want to talk about, uh, because I think it's sort of a microcosm of a greater issue. Um, and we've all heard about those big evolution versus creation debate you know i'm sure sadie has i'm sure you've watched some of them yep yep Uh, and so when there's this debate like what it was it was bill nye debating who was he debating yeah ken yeah so they're like we're gonna have this big debate we're gonna throw down we're gonna decide once and for all like when there's this big debate be it something like this or be it like a political debate with you know who's running for president or whatever none of the people who are debating are ever actually debating to try and win people over to their side that's one thing that you have to remember because these two sides essentially live in alternate realities like this is one thing that i've really had to explain to people when i've been talking about what we're doing here especially with this uh you know evolution versus creation uh, episode is our frameworks for understanding things are like not on the same planet they're they're just not and these are essentially two sides that live in alternate realities and what they're looking to do is to regurgitate what their audience already believes back to them and what they want to do like what they want to hear and then lampoon their opponent as an idiot lacking faith believing nonsense or just being downright cynical or having an ulterior motive And whichever side you're on at the beginning of this debate is going to be whatever side you're on at the end. Because like I said, these two sides are coming from alternate realities. They have different versions of fact, different versions of like different values. And these debates are like, it's not let's put two sides head to head to see which one is best and and challenge them ideas. They're just there to reinforce the ideology of who already believes them. This is something that creationists are actually pretty good about pointing out, actually, they will say that, well, neither you nor I was there when the universe came into being. So it is ideological. It is a matter of belief. It is a matter of faith. I think maybe their motives in saying that are not the greatest always, but it is to an extent, it's a matter of, of what, 
do you believe scientific evidence or scripture? It's also what kind of evidence you want to believe, because one side says, I have a book that's written down, this is what happened. And the other side says, well, we have a bunch of numbers and we have a bunch of like data that says this and that and the other thing. And we have these fossil records and we have a general idea. And it, well, it's also the question, though, of how you interpret the evidence, because I am not here to claim that a creationist reading of the fossil record is superior to an evolutionist reading, or really, I'm really not even here to claim that it's equally logical to an evolutionist reading of the fossil record, but there's not zero logic there. There's, there's, you know, creationism does have scripture-based explanations for some of the scientific phenomena. I'm not saying that they're correct about that, because I really don't know. Uh, but they're, it, it's, it's what evidence do you believe? How do you interpret that evidence? And if you're a person of strong faith, how can you make the evidence that you see make sense with the faith that you have? So I do want to talk about, before we get into the interview that we're about to have, I'd like to run through three of the main Christian beliefs about creation. Okay, let's do it. There there are quite a few different terms and different subsets of these groups, but they fall into three major groups. So the first one is is Young Earth Creationism, which believes that the Earth was created in six consecutive 24-hour days by God, who spoke things into existence with the appearance of age. Uh, so God made a mountain 6,000 years ago, but it looks like it's millions of years old because that's how God made it. 2,000 years after creation, the world was sinful. God sent a flood that completely covered the surface of the earth in water and left no dry land uncovered. The flood waters receded. The only humans remaining were Noah and his wife, his three sons, and each of their wives. Those eight humans repopulated the planet. Uh, this is this is a good place to reinforce the fact that young earth creationism depends on biblical literalism, but it also depends on a literal global flood, the Tower of Babel. All of those things have to be literal for one of them to be literal, which is what we talked about a few minutes ago with why this is so important. Uh, a mainstay of young earth creationism is the belief that God created the earth with the appearance of age which is their explanation for why there's observable light from stars that are over 6,000 light years away. But that's, that's it's a very, very basic idea of young earth creationism. Old earth creationism is an in-between point between young earth creationism and theistic evolution. And old earth creationism encompasses quite a few different views. Um, Day-age evolution is the idea that the six days in Genesis chapter 1 refer to ages or eons, and that God guided evolution through six eons. But if they weren't literal 24-hour days, they may have been thousands or millions of years long. Huh. I've never heard this before. I haven't heard of this. So, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, uh, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, on the first day, God created light. Well, that day wasn't 24 hours. It could have been a million years or a billion years. And then on the second day, God created, goodness, what is the second day? Is the second, oh, the second day is creation of land. The third day is creation of plants. Fourth day is birds and fish, I think. Oh man, I'm going to get, I'm going to get all the people in our Facebook group saying, how do you not remember this? <laughs> um, but that, that those, so the, the day on which God created birds and fish 
it's not referring to 24 hours uh, under the day age evolution idea. It's referring to an eon of evolution through which God guided evolution to make birds and fish. So that's one way that, that old earth creationists um, reconcile the faith in creation with the belief in evolution. Gap theory is the belief that there was a gap of millions or even billions of years between Genesis 1 verse 1 and Genesis 1 verse 2. And that evolution happened in that gap. God created the heavens and the earth. God created or God started evolution and then evolution happened and then God made man. There's a phrase, I believe in microevolution, but not macroevolution. And that's popular among more science-minded creationists. Um, you might hear this from a young earth creationist, but an old earth creationist is probably more likely to say it. This is the idea you brought up uh, in the Galapagos Islands. A plant or animal species had some traits that made them more likely to survive and reproduce. Like you said, the, the plants and animals with those traits had more descendants and those without the traits didn't. So eventually those traits were dominant in the population. Uh, we call that natural selection Certain creationists, actually quite a few creationists, believe in that type of evolution, in natural selection. What they reject is the idea that a fish ever evolved into a reptile or a reptile into a bird. So they will differentiate between microevolution and macroevolution to illustrate or explain that belief, that they believe in natural selection, but not in species evolution. And so these are all trying to reconcile two opposing worldviews. Right. So you can either completely reject evolution and be a young earth creationist. You can be somewhere in the middle and be an old earth creationist. Okay. So the other one, we can go straight into it then. The other one is theistic evolution. People who believe in theistic evolution believe that science is overwhelmingly correct about evolution, including the time frames. It's just a tacked on belief that God as the creator of light started the process of evolution and oversaw the process to bring about his desired results, including humanity. Older creationists might believe more towards the idea that God micromanaged evolution or that God did a little meddling in the process to bring about his will a little more specifically. Theistic evolutionists are less likely to believe that. They are more likely to believe in a hands-off God who started evolution with a plant, like he planned it out, he started it the way he wanted to start it, and then he kind of sat back and watched it happen. Theistic evolutionists may believe that God made little nudges here and there to make sure evolution went the right way. Uh, they may also just believe in that hands-off God. He started it, and he willed it into being, and then he sat back and watched it happen. Theistic evolutionists may believe that God allowed humans to evolve to a certain point and then gave them souls, and that would be the breathed into Adam the breath of life and man became a living soul bit from Genesis. They might also believe that evolution happened and then God created humans once the earth was ready for him. Old earth creationists are, I, I was not able to find what their beliefs on endowment of souls were. Um, we probably have someone who listens who is an old earth creationist or a theistic evolutionist. I'm sure we have quite a few who can maybe help us out with that. But the, the, there are, there's a spectrum of beliefs um, around God starting evolution or God guiding evolution. And the, the sticky point tends to be when did people get souls and what's the soul difference between a person and an animal. And uh, did, well, if Cro-Magnons Cro didn't have souls and Homo sapiens do have souls, well, do Homo erectus have souls? So that's kind of, that's... Uh, right. 
that's where these things kind of get sticky. Well, also the thing that I think that we forget about with that is that according to the theory of evolution, according to fossil records, a lot of these sort of early humans and humans lived at the same time, like humans and Neanderthals lived at the same time. Yeah, and bred with each other. Yes. And so, like, I mean, you and I, according to, and they, you know, Neanderthals apparently lived in like Europe, in the Middle East. And so, according to this theory, you know, if you go back enough generations, then uh, we have ancestors who are Neanderthals. Right. So, so yeah. So, you know, if you, if your ancestry DNA turns up that you have 2% Neanderthal DNA, does that mean you have 98% of a soul? So the, the, I don't know, man. Where, so I, I find a lot of sense in uh, old earth creationism and theistic evolution. I find a lot of logic in there uh, where Christians really get bogged down in the mud talking about these things. I feel like old earth creationism and theistic evolution have so much logic in them, but people really get bogged down talking about, well, when, what constitutes humanity and when do people get souls? That's like what really gets people deep in the weeds on those theories. Huh. Okay. So what, so if say you're a creationist and you are going into battle against a dyed in the wool evolutionist, uh, what are your big talking points going to be? What are your weapons? The, the, the couple big ones that are definitely going to come up are the, um, the watchmaker theory. So the existence of a watch, points to the existence of a watchmaker. So the existence of a creation points to the existence of a creator. Of course, that only makes sense if you refer to like the universe's creation. I suppose it could be the existence of a universe points to the existence of a university. Right, sure. <laughs> so, so that one tends to not go over real well because, well, the existence of a universe can, can point to evolution. Um, a couple <laughs> things that really get brought up often from younger creationists and other people who are, who are debating this uh, are missing links and transitional forms in the fossil record. The idea of, uh, well, you never find anything that's half reptile, half fish or half reptile, half bird. Uh, you get questions about fossils that'll th- fossils that are found on top of mountains that shouldn't be there. Like why would a Marine, fossil be found on the top of a mountain uh, if it wasn't deposited there by the Great Flood. Uh, you will get questions about uh, specifically Piltdown Man, I believe is, is the correct fossil that I'm referring to, but it is a, a, a fraud pre-human fossil that a scientist who was known for creating frauds and later was completely discredited because he made so many frauds. He constructed a fossil out of like an orangutan jaw and a pig tooth i think and said oh this is a pre-human ancestor and it was proven to be a fraud um creationists will bring that up and say well how many others are frauds um and how many of the transitional form uh supposed fossils are frauds they will bring up the paluxy river tracks which are a which is a, a fossil set that shows or is supposed to show dinosaur footprints and ho- human footprints walking side by side the footprints that would have like in a way that the footprints would have been made within hours of each other they will they will say well this doesn't this prove that dinosaurs and humans walked side by side 
And then, of course, all of the questions that I've been asking over the last episode or two about carbon dating. Um, how do we know that it's accurate? And uh, how, 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 how do we know if it's accurate if we can't test it on anything? And that sort of question. So these, these things that I've kind of been hinting at in the dinosaur episode are some of the most common creationist talking points. So we're about to go to break in a little bit, but after break, we were actually going to bring up all of these talking points and more uh, with our guest, uh, David Jones, who is going to actually talk to us about and answer all of Sadie's questions about evolution. And so this is going to be really, really interesting. Yeah, Please I'm, stay tuned for this. I'm really excited for that. Um, so I'm ready to go to break when you are, unless there's anything else that we needed to address before that. Nope. Uh, yeah. So we're going to go take up the offering and then we're going to come back and we're going to have uh, just actually we've already recorded it at the point that we're recording this. It's really good and you want to listen to it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Sadie. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode one, where we start the whole story. You might also want to check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism. If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really do appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. Welcome back from our break. Uh, we are so excited to be here. Uh, Sadie and I thought that it would be a good idea to talk about evolution with somebody who knows a good deal about evolution. So I want to introduce uh, our audience to our guest today, uh, David Jones, if you want to introduce yourself to our wonderful audience. Um, well, hello, wonderful audience. Um, I am a um, trained scientist, although I'm not a specialist in evolution it's been of uh, particular interest to me for on the order of uh, 50 years wow that's a long time and you have uh what, you have degrees in um biology and geology what what is it um well i have uh, undergrad degrees in biology and geology i've worked at the usgs i've uh, done exploration geophysics with a uh, major oil company and I have a uh, master's in biology with a um, emphasis uh, in botany. 
Sadie, you know, we had uh, write up some questions beforehand that she really wanted to talk to you about. And these are things that I'm really, you know, that I think that, uh, Sadie, why don't you put it in your words? Because I think you could say it better than I could. I will go for that. Thank you so much for being here with us, David. And thank you for being willing to answer my millions of questions or my millions and billions of years worth of questions. Maybe. <laughs> um, but let's, uh, so I want to start with one that's maybe make him off as a little bit confrontational, but I, I would really honestly, genuinely like to know, are you personally 100% convinced? Do you 100% believe that evolution is the truth that it's the way that the universe and life on planet earth came into being like, is, is this, are you a hundred percent convinced of this? Uh, absent uh, some force or other that would um, embed misleading information in the natural world. Yes. Okay. Can, Can I just say something real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Because the way that you phrase that, you know. know, when we did our, <laughs> you know, when we did our soul winning episode, I know. <laughs> and you, uh, and so, you know, and you, you were like, well, when I was a door-to-door soul winner, I would go up to the door of people and say, do you know 100% for sure if you died today, you would get into it? That's how you phrase I'm that. I'm sorry. It's just like, that's the only, like, those are the words that I was that was trained to use to express absolute certainty. And that's still the way I phrase things sometimes. The cult runs strong with one. The, 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 cult the brainwashing runs strong. is strong with this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had a couple of things pop up this week that were just like, oh, okay, I know where that came from. Yeah. So, so my follow-up question to that, though, is what, if you could, I know there are probably a lot of reasons that you believe that, but could you run through a couple of maybe the biggest reasons or the standout reasons that have convinced you? You know, the, uh, and I just want to say that uh, any scientist worth their salt uh, will never be 100% convinced absolutely that what they know to be true is absolutely 100% true because that's not how science works. Um, science works by poking at truths and testing them. So the reason I, uh, I feel this way and the reason why I, decades ago, became more and more convinced is because uh, there are lines of evidence in physics, astrophysics, biology, and geology that all point um, to a, an evolving world, one that is not static, one that is not uh, necessarily uh, driven to greater complexity or any particular point, but it does change. And um, in the case of life, things that work better survive better um, and pass on their genes to their offspring and so on. Uh, it's 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 a it's a confluence of things. It's the fossil record. It is um, stellar evolution that produces um, heavy elements from uh, the original hydrogen and helium uh, that dominated the early universe. Um, we are the products of supernovas. Those elements were fused in the cores of earlier stars that blew up and blew out their heavier elements, and our sun formed from a gas cloud that contained those elements, uh, in particular, the ones we love best, nitrogen, oxygen, and mostly carbon. Uh, without those, no idea if life could possibly exist. So I want to get into the fossil record in a minute. I liked what you said about um, our changing universe or our evolving 
universe. Because the the idea of things that are better at being the things they are reproduce more and those offspring get those genes and those genes eventually become dominant and things evolve small, you know, small level or low level evolution evolve that way. Animals evolve to survive better in their natural environments. That I am totally on board with because I think there's there's evidence. And I like that you said our changing universe or our evolving universe, because that's something we can observe over a few hundred years. Well, you have the advantage in uh, astronomy and astrophysics of being able to look back in the past. Um, you know, the farther away you look, the farther back in time you look, because the universe is expanding. How can how can we know the universe is expanding? A galaxy is going to have a large variety of different stars in it, of different ages. And uh, the light emitted from a galaxy um, is going to have a fairly consistent uh, profile uh, of their of, of light spectrum. So visible light, actually they can look in infrared and, and other frequencies as well. Uh, it was discovered in the early 20th century that, in fact, light from galaxies, as opposed to appearing as you would figure it to be, as you would uh, model it to be, is redshifted. Are you familiar with um, a Doppler shift? Mm, no, I don't think so. What you, it's, it's what you get when you hear a siren pass by you. It goes, you know, as it's approaching you, it's at a higher pitch. And oh. then there's a transition as it goes past you to a lower pitch. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I've heard I've I've heard that with my ears. I just didn't know what it was called. Yeah. yeah, it's just a lower frequency. So basically, if it's going further away, then it's going to be a lower frequency. Well, right? it has to do it has to do with the speed. So um, if you think of if you think of a sound wave, and something's approaching you, those peaks between the waves are are compressed. They're getting there yeah. faster because the source of the sound is moving. Okay. And, and the same on the other side. If it's going away from you, it's stretched. It's Okay. And, and, I'm, and I'm a musician, so the sound wave analogy is working for me. Sure. So light does the same thing. So if an object is approaching you, uh, it'll be uh, what is called blue shifted. If it's going away from you, it'll oh be red shifted. Oh, my God. That is so cool. Yeah. This is fascinating stuff. My mind is so blown. Right oh, my God. That makes like so much sense. Oh, no, you blew my mind so much I may have woken up my baby. That makes so much sense, though. Of course it would be, because light has frequency just like sound has frequency. Yep. You know, Sadie, you, you said at the beginning that you weren't going to have like a giant, like a, a come to Jesus <laughs> moment on this stuff. But, and we're um, like seven minutes in and I, <laughs> I just like never heard of that before, because what I was taught is, oh, well, scientists say that the universe is expanding, but how would they know? They can't measure it. And that's how they would know. And like that's you got a ruler. That's how I found out. I got a ruler measured from here to Jupiter. I took a tape measure. <laughs> yeah, a long tape measure. As it turns out, the the older the galaxy you look at, the farther away it is, the more redshift there is. Because so, it's moving. Because things that are farther away are moving faster, or just yeah. because they're farther. Um, it's uh, it's because they're moving faster. So things at the edge of the universe. No, there's an. Is there an edge to the universe? Well, there's an edge. To, there's an edge to what we can detect. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, so uh, things that are farther away from us are moving faster than things that are closer to us, uh, or closer mostly. to the center. Um, Is there a center of the universe? I'm sorry. 
you know, if, if there is, nobody has been able to identify it. The, the other way to look at it is um, if you imagine a balloon that you might, a party balloon that you might blow up and you mm-hmm. put polka dots on it. As you blow that up, all of the polka dots are moving away from the center. Now, in a balloon, you know where the center is, but in the universe, you just know that everything um, that you can see, or most things anyway, almost everything, is moving away from you. The farther away something is, the faster it appears to be moving. Appears to be. Okay. This is this is making sense. So you can show that the universe is expanding. Yeah. But I've heard that as a as a proof that evolution isn't real because, um, well, if the big bang theory happened, then then the universe would have to still be expanding and scientists say that it is, but they don't have a tape measure. How would they know? So I am super pleased to hear about, Oh no, this is how we know because uh, observable light and light and sound waves, those are not scientific concepts that even the strictest creationist can dispute. Those are just, that is, that is very, very proven science. So that was super cool to hear about, like how we use those scientific concepts that are very common to show that the universe is expanding and is like really big and it's cool. <laughs> it absolutely is. That is that is that is very neat, and I have already learned something very cool from this discussion. Let's center back on the the fossil record because that I think is where creationists have more of a, a dispute with evolution scientists. One huge creationist talking point is the supposed absence in the fossil record of transitional forms, which are sometimes referred to as missing links. I believe that I read about the Scopes Monkey Trial preparing for this interview, and I'm pretty sure that that was one big point that came up in the Scopes Monkey Trial. Creationists claim that the fossil record will show a fish or an amphibian, but no record of a creature between the two. They also, and so when I was researching for this, I found on Wikipedia some things, some fossils that could be transitional forms. Creation scientists will come back and say that the few fossils that evolutionists hold up as transitional forms are often extremely tenuous. There was one, I think it was Piltdown Man. There was one supposed pre-human that was constructed from a single fossilized tooth and the jawbone of a pig, and it was a it was a fraud by this um, this scientist who reliably pr- produced uh, fraud fossils throughout his life. What can what can you tell us about transitional forms, uh, potentially fraudulent fossils? Can we get into that whole discussion? Sure. So, Piltdown Man is one of the most uh, uh, basic stories um, that gets told in um, human evolution. And it was indeed a fraud. It was the uh, partial jaw and teeth of an orangutan with a um, small adult human, part of a small adult human skull. And uh, it actually, so that popped up, I think it was pre-World War One in England and wasn't uh, proven to be a fraud until 1953. A fraud is uh, poison to science. When you start faking data, uh, it's it's the surest way to, in this particular case, uh, it took a long time. But in most cases, scientists are, are, are in competition. So if somebody comes up with an amazing piece of evidence, that evidence is going to get examined again and again and again because, one, people want to understand it, and two, uh, they can make a reputation on debunking it. There's a, a, a lot of... There's a lot of cross-checking 
in science and it's not coordinated it just happens it's like a you know marketplace of ideas as far as uh transitional fossils yeah unfortunately uh most of the examples that exist in the um fossil record are uh dismissed as either being uh, a fraud uh by creationists or um as actually not being transitional it's either a this or a that and not mm-hmm. in between um the most famous example is probably archaeopteryx which was a a very 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 detailed uh fossil found in a quarry in germany uh the rock that was used was actually being quarried to use in uh printing because it was so fine grained you could uh, uh get very very detailed images uh embedded in it and print them like you know posters or uh, art prints mm-hmm. um and it clearly uh is a transitional uh figure uh it 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 it, it looks kind of like a bird but um its mouth has teeth um it has feathers you can see the feathers in this very 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 fine grained sediment a uh, real telltale uh that's very obvious is uh the tail so you know birds have tails but their tails are feathers mm-hmm. this thing has uh, a spine in its tail so the spine has become feathered the tail has become feathered um it it is a, a beautiful transitional fossil but uh creationists with most transitional fossils that they're presented with will say it's a you know it well that's you know that's a lizard or that's a bird um and not something in between it's clearly clearly in between uh one of the classic uh fossil series in um vertebrate uh paleontology is the progression of horses um from somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million years ago to the present day and um there are clear transitions of uh in eohippus to a mesohippus to finally getting to um uh the genus equus uh and it's a matter of size and shape of bones a number of toes on the foot modern horses have one toe um and that's the hoof uh they walk on their toes uh eohippus had i think four toes and a dewclaw something like that and oh, there is an even progression of toe loss and hoof production um and so what what uh uh creationists will say was well they're all horses so where's the change another thing that i've heard from the creationists is all of those so maybe those are all different species that god created in the garden of eden and then after the flood uh only the modern horse survived and all of these other species of horse that god created to begin with just didn't happen to survive or reproduce after the flood which seems a bit shoehorned <laughs> I mean that's it's one of those circular logic things like we were talking about earlier is like yeah. okay well if you believe that, then it proves itself. Um so there there are a couple of things at work there um but the the strongest one of which is science as a um uh, a way of looking at the world relies on uh the idea of falsifiability. So um anything a scientist proposes uh has to be you have to be able to falsify it. You know if you find evidence that contradicts 
the prevailing ideas, then the prevailing ideas are wrong and have to be adjusted. And that's true of even the most basic things. You know, Newton came up with a system of mathematics that could predict uh, the precise orbits of planets. And it turns out that that's a really, really good approximation, but we can do better now uh, using different mathematics. The thing about creationists is that uh, they're constantly trying to pick and choose data um, to fit their theory, as opposed to building their theory from the data. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, and, it's, it's backwards. And I don't know how many uh, Christian fundamentalists you're personally acquainted with. Um, I have cousins. <laughs> I have cousins. His cousins went to Bob Jones University. Is that right? Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you really are in the in the extended family. Okay, I'm with you. Um, the the pick and choose thing really applies to it. It gets applied to scripture as well. Because mm-hmm. it, what what the word that we always used for that is proof texting. So you have an opinion and then you look for a scripture to back it up. Right. And well, one thing I wanted to point out real quick is kind of the addictedness of being right. When oh, absolutely. Yeah. So when I was in completely immersed in this, in the world of Christian fundamentalism and young earth creationism, I felt like I had an answer for everything. And I was even uh, somewhat trained to do creation evolution debates and to debate for creationism. And personally, I think I would have done a better job than Ken Ham, but that's just me. I was told that creation scientists or creation science has an answer for literally everything. And that's very addictive and that's very hard to give up. So I think when creationists see something, see uh, fossils that were fraudulent, it's very easy for them to say, oh, well, see, all the transitional form fossils are fraudulent. Or when they see, and if they can't explain it with that, they see a fossil and said, oh, well, that's a species that God created, but it didn't survive the flood for whatever reason. Um, And there have been uh, literally... Uh, millions and millions and millions of species uh, that are now extinct and were extinct before uh, humans set pen to paper. So uh, it seems like a um, a rather profligate waste on God's part to do all that creating and uh, discarding. That's a point that I've made before. I, I do really agree with that. Because the the creationist and the broader Christian point of view is that God is incapable of making mistakes. Uh, God is incapable of creating something that is less than perfect. Uh, because uh, there are several scriptures that are used to back that up. But if God is incapable of creating something that isn't perfect, what about all the species that are extinct? Um, and who's to say? Well, you know, um, uh, species are never perfect. They're just either better or, you know, less well adapted to their environment. When the environment changes, like the environment we live in right now is changing, those adaptations can become um, non-adaptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a uh, story. Um, one of the largest groups of animals on the planet is beetles. There's something like 5 million species of beetles. What? I think, yeah, they're they're just prolific. And there was a, a fellow, I think it was J.B.S. Haldane, who said um, God must have had an inordinate fondness for beetles. There are 4,000 bats. There are, you know, 3,000 other mammals, uh, species. 
but there are 5 million beetles. How could we know there are 5 million species of beetles? Because I don't think anybody can count to 5 million. Um, are they in a computer <laughs> database somewhere? Or is yeah. that an estimate? Oh, oh it's, it, it's always an estimate. Oh, okay. Um, that um, makes more but, sense. Uh, you know, people, people, you know, it, it's, it's like the derogatory term is, is stamp collecting. But, um, you know, one way to get your name out there in science is to discover a new critter. And when there are that many beetle species out there, uh, beetles tend to get discovered. And you can you can attach your name to that species. You can you can be forever uh, associated with uh, that discovery. So it's it's a uh, it's something that uh, appeals to the human side of scientists, uh, but also then works on the uh, scientific side of science. Okay, that that makes sense. Why there would be so many species of beetles? Just how? Why? Why? Why beetles would be so important to be counted? Uh, you know, it's it's um, as my uh, graduate advisor used to say: um, you have to know what you have before you can realize what you've lost. That's a very deep statement. Wow. I brought up the the flood a minute ago, and I brought up the the whole deal where uh, creation people, creationists, really like to have an answer for everything. So I, I very recently learned just a couple weeks ago from Gavi that fossils were made in arid and dry climates where organic materials didn't decay quickly, and then the organic materials were replaced by stone, and then that was compressed between layers of sand or eventually sandstone or different types of rock, and that's how fossils are made. I was always told that fossils were made by the Great Flood. So when the when the Noetic Flood happened, a bunch of things on Earth died. All, all sorts of organic things died. Plants died and animals died. And the pressure of the water... So the, the waters of the Great Flood deposited sand and silt and dirt in places. And then the pressures from the many feet of water of the Great Flood pushed down on that organic material that was now buried in dirt. And that's what made fossils. What I'm wondering, so so that's a, a, that's a thing that evolution has an answer for and creation has an answer for. Can you explain if one of these two ideas is more likely than the other, which I feel like you probably can, uh, but I'd also like <laughs> to know, is there any scientific reason that fossils could not possibly have been made by the Great Flood? Um, okay, so let me just uh, back up a moment because yeah, feel free. Uh, most fossils are actually uh, marine. Um, they're deposited in, in a marine environment. The most common fossils on the planet are microscopic plants that live in the upper ocean. Uh, when they die, their little shells made of calcium and, in some cases, silica, fall to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, depending on where they live and what the nature of the environment is in the ocean, um, that can just keep on going on for an extraordinary amount of time. Let me tell you a little story. This is something I read probably 20 years ago. Uh, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci um, started hearing stories about uh, marine fossils up in the Alps. Now, the Alps are, in many places, a limestone, thousands and thousands of feet of limestone. Limestone only has 
uh, there's one form that's very rare that isn't, but almost all limestone is formed from fossils. Fossils of these microscopic critters uh, to clams to um, any other thing you can think of that lives in the sea. They, um, uh, they live, they die, they sink, um, and that keeps on going on for aeons. Uh, gets buried and uh, consolidated into stone. When you think about it, limestone is what they mine and then bake to create cement. So uh, you look at you look at modern construction, and um, uh, we're using uh, those those ancient little tiny critter fossils to make concrete. Uh, anyway, so uh, Leonardo heard about this, and his you know his appetite for mental challenges was just unbounded. So he went up to the Alps to take a look, and he found fossils of clams and oysters and uh, scallops. And the thing he noted about them was that they were articulated. Uh, you know, clams have two shells, one on the top, one on the bottom. Mm-hmm. And the ones he found were um, still together. If those clams had been tumbled in a great flood, uh, he would have expected to see almost all of them disarticulated. So he was left with the thought that um, number one, uh, here are marine organisms, um, seven, eight, nine thousand feet up in the air in the Alps. How did they get there? And it could not have been the flood because the flood would have torn them apart. So that is that is a really good point. I the 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 theory I would have been raised with is that those unlucky clams just happened to die around the same time as the flood because um, marine animals were not included in God's judgment of the earth, apparently, and were not taken on the ark with Noah and his family. All the sea animals and marine animals got to stay put while the flood happened. That unlikely or that unlucky clam just kind of happened to die around the same time. It got squished into rock by the flood and then so a lot of creation scientists believe, or creationists, I, I don't know if I should say creation scientist on this podcast, um, believe... It that's what they prefer. It's their preferred title, <laughs> Sadie. We're treating people with respect. It is, it is something of an oxymoron. Yeah. It, it is because there's not a lot of actual science being done. There's explanations of science with scripture being done. But it's know, not that I have a problem with that if that's what makes a person feel good. I am not real happy with calling it science, though. Anyway, what what I think they would say is that that clam just happened to die right before the flood. It got squished by the flood and the earth was just one big continent before the flood. And then the pressure of the flood broke it apart into pieces that make the continents that we have now. And there's tectonic plates under there. And as it moved, the plates bumped into each other. And that's how mountains got made. And so- I don't That's know. Like, I feel like I'm not completely up on my science here, but this is like this well, is the extent of my scientific knowledge. <laughs> so, if if in fact the 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 ark landed on Mount Ararat, mm-hmm. Ararat had a name before the flood. It was a mountain before the flood. Oh, right. So there were mountains there before the flood. Boom. You hear that? Oh, that's, no, that's actually a very good point. Got him. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Gavi. I really appreciate it. I, re- I really appreciate that. 
so much. Um, no, that's actually a very good logical point. Um, my other thing about Ararat since it came up is that I watched a very depressing documentary where people really tried awfully very hard to find the Ark uh, and couldn't do it. And that was a, a bit of a world shaker for me. <laughs> Because I was, uh, because I was raised, uh, Gabby, you'll appreciate this. It's in a chick tract um, that oh god, <laughs> that people have found the ark on Mount Ararat. People know exactly where it is. We could give you the coordinates. There's pictures of it, but the government doesn't want you to see them, so they're hidden, I guess. Um, and then also the the Nepali government uh, doesn't want Christianity to become the world religion like it's supposed to. So the evil satanic government of nepal is not letting any more people in to take pictures of the ark so that's what I, that's like that's what jack chick had to say about this does jack chick have a chick tract about evolution oh so many like so many we got to look at some of those man we i'm excited for that but back to back to the <laughs> back, back to the questions so the the answer to let me see if i can answer my own creation my own question here i'm getting so i'm learning so much that my brain is exploding so the, the next question that I had is that uh, something used as proof of creationism is fossils of organic matter in places where it wouldn't logically have existed, like a fossil of a marine organism found on top of a mountain. So the answer to that is, well, if it got there from the flood, why were the clamshells still together instead of thrown all over the place by the flood? Yeah, or... I guess the evolution answer would be that the they're older than the mountains, which is wild to think about because we think of mountains as being eternal. You know, that's kind of true, except, um, uh, you know, people keep on remeasuring um, uh, Mount Everest uh, because there are two opposing forces at work with Mount Everest. The Himalayas and Everest are still rising. Uh, but of course, as they rise, they also erode. They, they keep on doing remeasures and, you know, it'll go up a couple feet. It'll come down a couple feet. It'll go up a couple feet. Um, and, you know, the, the measurements they're, they're, they're doing are incredibly precise, you know, lasers from satellites and stuff. So, and also GPS, um, uh, you know, very, very precise measurements. Um, so uh, mountains, you know, they rise, they fall, they rise, they fall. Um uh, and you can easily imagine, if given enough time, that even the Himalayas could be laid flat. Um, and in fact, at some time way off in the future, um, when tectonic forces quit pushing the mountains up, uh, they will begin to flatten. That's what happened with the uh, Appalachians in the eastern United States. They're the remains of uh, absolutely huge mountains that rose in the Paleozoic, and what we what we see now as you know the tallest mountain on the East Coast is Mount Washington at a touch over six thousand feet. It's the remains of mountains that were uh, twenty thousand feet, twenty five thousand feet, maybe even thirty thousand feet. But what makes tectonic forces push if it's not um, if it's so? I te- I was kind of taught that or as, as far as I can I'm sorry my brain is just is just running a mile a minute and my mouth is not keeping up here let me try that again um I was taught that tectonic forces push because of the pressure of the great flood 
and the firmament breaking and all of that extra water pressure is why it's why volcanoes explode it's why earthquakes happen it's why tectonic plates move that's where the pressure came from is the flood where is the pressure coming from if not the flood uh, so plate tectonics was an idea uh, continental drift i think was the original term was an idea that came up um, pretty much in the 20th century was really solidified in um, the 60s and the driving force that uh, science sees is a uh, molten churning interior earth back in the earliest 20th century there was a uh, english scientist who calculated the age of the earth based on um, the uh, radiation of heat from the earth and it came up with anything i think a big error bar but 24 to 400 million years what he didn't know is that the earth has um, a, a large supply of radioactive elements which when they decay give off heat so you've seen you've seen uh, videos of volcanoes erupting yes uh, that that heat isn't left over from the formation of the earth it is being generated um, continually and in a somewhat declining fashion by the decay of radioactive material um, in the interior of the earth. So you get these uh, convection currents of material, um, very, very slow scale. Um, tectonic plates move at about the same rate that your fingernails grow, uh, one to two inches per year. It's basically a constant. Uh, if you're familiar with the Hawaiian um, islands, um, they're an anomaly in terms of volcanoes because they're in the middle of the Pacific plate, but they're over what's called a hot spot. It's a place where this convection is directed upward um, in what's called a plume. And as the Pacific plate drifts over the Hawaiian Islands, uh, volcanoes form, and as the plate drifts, that island moves off the um, hot spot, a new island forms. So the, the dr current drift is to the northwest. So the oldest um, large island is Kauai, and it's about 5 million years old. And the youngest island is the big island of Hawaii, and it's um, less than a million years old. Um, and there's a new island forming south of what? the big island. There's, uh, it's still beneath the waves, but it's uh, about 3,000 feet deep. But um, that's where there's a lot of volcanic eruption happening and a new island is building. You know, you want to you want to hang around for the next, you know, 250,000 years to see it actually pop up. OK, that is that is really, really cool that it, that that is neat with like the new island coming up. That is that is super cool. And now I want to live for 250,000 years to see it. Here's here's one more that you weren't prepared for, and then I'll go back to the, the last few questions that are actually on my list. Do you have any thoughts on what is in the center of the Earth? Is there any reason that hell couldn't be there? Like, is there any way to prove that it's solid and there's not just a big hole with all the dead people who didn't love Jesus? Um... Yeah, there, there. I would there love is. like well, proof that it's like there's like stuff in there and not hell. 
Um, okay. Um, uh, the sorry, um, I know that's a little bit of. A- <laughs> well, so so one of the things gets used in um, surveying um, oceans. Um, and in fact, you can do it on land as well, but it's more often a, an instrument towed behind a ship. It's called a magnetometer. There's a similar one called a gravimeter, and the gravimeter will reveal the slight variations in gravity uh, depending on what's between it and uh, the center of the Earth. Now, we know that the Earth has a certain mass because uh, of gravity. So gravity is a function of mass. And so we, we have an idea of how much the Earth weighs because how, of how strong gravity is. The only way you could have hell work as a subterranean realm is if um, souls had mass um, because they would be displacing a significant amount of mass. It would show up in gravimeter surveys as mm-hmm. a, um, a low gravity zone unless souls had mass. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Um, we all we all probably know that there there was a there was a very well known hoax about a team surveying in Siberia who dug a d- dug a, a bored a hole nine miles into the ground, and when they put a microphone down that hole, they heard screaming and people saying, "I'm in hell. I should have trusted Jesus." Um, we all know that that was what? that was a proven. Gavi, we're going to do an entire episode on it. Um, it was a proven hoax, but it was very popular in the 70s and 80s um, on American Christian TV. Like, we all know that's a hoax. Um, and of course, the fact that hell is not in the center of the earth doesn't disprove or prove the existence or non-existence of a spiritual place of torment in the afterlife. Because this isn't a spiritual question, it's a scientific question. I do really appreciate your scientific answer, though, on why there is not a physical place in the center of the earth that dead people go. That is exactly what I was looking for. <laughs> the other thing about that is that uh, the, the earth, scientists believe that the earth's core is made of iron. Is is that right? It's like a, uh, a, an iron, uh, iron and nickel together. Yeah. And that it's spinning and that's what generates the magnetic field that's around the earth that deflects all of the harmful rays of the sun. Uh, in, in particular, the um, uh, the uh, charged particles. Uh, after There's a all, magnetic get, field around the Earth. Yes. Oh uh, wow! Very strong. That's why that's why a compass works. Um, and oh, I thought can, it was just because the poles were magnetic. Well, that's why the poles are magnetic because uh, really? any magnet generates a magnetic field. Yeah. So you, oh, wow. in cool. science class, so in, when I was a kid, you know, in science class, they get a magnet like a one where it'd be north at one end, south at the other end, and they give you a bunch of iron filings and you put them on a piece of paper and then you shake it up a bit. It, it shows you what a magnetic field looks like. Yeah, I had, I had done that. I just I didn't realize that there was a spinning magnetic field thing all the way around Earth. I thought it was just that one pole was positive and one pole was negative, and that's how compasses work, because it just points to the one thing. And so all of like that, those charged particles coming from the sun, they get pulled into the north and south pole, and then when that's what generates the northern lights, the aurora borealis. What? Yes. Really. Yes. Oh, that's so cool. I'm a big, like, I love Aurora Borealis. Um, one of my biggest life goals is to go to see them at, like, one of the best viewing times. But, okay, I'm so sorry for interrupting. I feel like I really just jumped in there, but I had no idea about this whole magnetic field thing. Either I wasn't taught that or I totally forgot it. No, but it's real. Actually, there was a, have you seen the movie The Core? No. 
haven't seen a lot of movies. There is this really bad movie. It's got Aaron Eckhart in it. Um, but basically, the plot of the movie is that the core of the Earth stops spinning, and then like all life on Earth is going to be destroyed unless they can get the core of the Earth spinning again. Oh so they build this like ship to drill into the center of the Earth, and then they find help. Well, no, they they have to set off a bunch of nuclear bombs in the center of the Earth to get the core spinning again. It's oh. basically like Armageddon, except they go in underground instead of going to space. David, did you have anything that you needed to sew up about the magnetic field thing? <laughs> or did it, did we completely like lose our track because of that? So um, uh, just just a, a, a not quite random fact. One of the... Um, one of the items of uh, evidence, one of the data points in uh, plate tectonics um, is um, as plates are consumed at their margins, um, for example, the Pacific plate and the ring of fire, uh, those plates, that plate is diving, is, be- is being eaten at on both sides, Asia and North America, South America. Uh, but it's also uh, has spreading centers. So new material is being made. And um, that new material, so this, this relates to uh, Gavi's point that, yes, there, there is a magnetic field that permeates the entire Earth. So uh, there are little tiny uh, iron magnetic particles in lava. Lava erupts on the ocean floor as the plate pulls apart, and it records uh, the polarity of the uh, poles at the time it was made. And uh, the polarity of the poles has flipped over time. So north becomes south, south becomes north. Uh, nobody really understands. I don't think there are any really good um, hypotheses about why this happens. It just, it does happen. Um, and so if you look at the magnetic uh, direction of uh, the ocean floor, which you can do with, as I mentioned, a magnetometer, uh, it will show north, then south, then north, then south, then north, then south, in parallel stripes on either side of the spreading center. So as plates pull apart, magma wells up, chilled, cooled, freezing the magnetic um, signal, um, and then it happens again, it happens again. Every time the poles flip, the magnetic moment in those stripes of rock flip. I'm trying to talk, but words are not coming out. Um, it that kind is of looks, so cool. Uh, it kind of it kind of looks like um, what would be a good analogy? It's like zebra uh, stripes. Kind of, yeah, but not not quite as wiggly and uh, and very much symmetric um, around the spreading center. So, do we know how often the poles flip, or do we just do we have any guesses? Um, well, yes, because uh, uh, they've age-dated rocks from uh, these different stripes. And it's uh, anywhere from uh, a million years to uh, tens of millions of years where the poles can uh, remain in the same orientation, and then they flip. Uh, it, it's too bad we're not, we're not uh, on a video connection here because you know, there's tons of stuff I could show you visually um, that would be easier to understand, but that wouldn't really help the audience, would it? Well, if you want to send us anything, we'll put it on our Instagram. Yeah, if there's any if there's any visuals you'd like to have go along with your talking, we can certainly put them on Instagram. 
I feel like I'm getting a pretty good mental image. I'm understanding what you're saying. I'm just, I'm not responding because Gavi, can you tell, can you remind everybody what it was like when I looked at the, the dinosaur head fossil? Yeah. So, I mean, we went to the dinosaur museum. We went to the, the museum and she was looking at this fossil like for 10 minutes straight, just trying to comprehend how old it was. It, you know, it does, it does take some... It was like being frozen in time. I'm pretty sure everyone else at the Science Museum that day might have thought I was a weirdo because I was just standing kind of in a, what would you call it? Like a, like a, almost like a getting ready to take off for a foot race position. Yeah. Just <laughs> kind of bracing my feet against the ground. Very tense posture, just staring at Stan the T-Rex fossil head. Yeah, it was very cool, though. It was, it was, I just, I've never I seen one in person. There was, was just a lot. There's a lot going through my mind right now. Um, we are coming to the end of our time. So I'd love to give you a choice. If you wanted to talk about the Paluxy river tracks, or if you wanted to talk about carbon dating, or if there was anything else that you'd rather hit instead, as we get close to wrapping this up, this has been amazing. Um, well, so, uh, real quick about, if you wanted Paluxy. to, okay, go ahead. It's a um, dinosaur era um, set of rocks uh, found in Texas. You know, you really can't hang a hang a, a, a hat on any of that stuff. It's been too uh, monkeyed with. Um, so it was discovered uh, in the early 20th century. Um, there were scientists who took a look at stuff, said, "Yeah, those are those are dinosaurs." The the elongated um, tracks that people thought looked like footprints. Uh, there were there was a, a scientist who said, yeah, you know, it'd be really convincing if there were toes. And he went back a couple of years later and somebody had carved toes. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like in the 30s. This is, this is a place, uh, for those who aren't familiar, this is a place where they're saying, oh, humans and dinosaurs lived at the same time because they're dinosaur footprints next to human footprints. Um, and there are a number of lines of evidence that um, they're not human, um, including... Uh, on very close examination, um, finding uh, dinosaur toe marks. Um, And what they think is that um, the dinosaurs have an option of walking uh, up on their toes or back uh, on their flat foot, where the uh, last digit, which is called a halux, could have made those those impressions. Uh, they've, They've looked at it you know, it was mostly mostly in the 80s when this was looked at really, really hard by mainstream scientists. And there's not a one of them uh, that they were um, even vaguely convinced by. Um, and in fact, um, the some of the creationist community allowed us how that they're not they're not provably human. So that in a nutshell, I wanted to toss, uh, Sadie, another bombshell to you. OK, let's do it. OK. What came first, creation or scripture? Scripture. In the beginning scripture. was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the living word of God. Jesus was with God, present in heaven before creation. So, I'm sorry, I had to give you the fundamentalist wow. answer. Damn. And, and, that's, and uh, I, that's quoting from John chapter 1, in case anybody was wondering. So... So you're saying scripture precedes creation? In the in the creationist view, I thought I would give you the the pat I creationist had, answer. I had no idea. Yeah, that is that. I was quoting from John chapter one. 
the, sure. the relevant theology is that Jesus is not only the Son of God, he is also the living Word of God, the Word of God in the flesh. John chap uh, Genesis chapter 1 says, let us make man in our image, showing that the Trinity was present before creation. John chapter 1 calls Jesus the living Word of God and says that he was present with God before all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So that's, well, that, so there's your that's the, the fundamentalist Christian creationist thing. You um, thought you were going to blow her mind and she blew yours. Yeah. Because, you know, to my mind, Scripture is what is written down. Right. Um, if you're if you're looking yeah. at it as, of course, a recorded Scripture or readable Scripture, creation, of course, would be first. So my my thought is that creation is actually the original Scripture. It's it's um, it's God's handiwork that that appeared in the universe um, before anyone wrote anything down. Mm-hmm. It had to be that way. Uh, there was no one to write anything down at the beginning. So when scripture says, um, you know, and on the seventh day he rested, well, you know, on days one, two, three, and four, uh, there were, you know, uh, nobody there to write anything down. Nobody there to uh, actually hear the word of God. And my thought is that what we see in the natural world is um, the most basic, pure scripture possible. Another thought that that I have that goes along with that is that what we see in the world around us is a lot less subject to mistranslation than written words, because the regardless of what English translation of the Bible you're holding, it's been translated from uh, at least through three or four different languages on the way to ending up in your hands in English and it may have been revised or you don't know unless you know Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and Latin and can go back and recheck every translation between the scrolls that it was written on and your hands, which you could never do. It, it's you, you either believe by faith that the Bible is literally 100% perfect and true or you don't. And, but the thing is that uh, creation or the world around us is a lot less you can't mistranslate a rock or maybe it's hard. It's harder. You, you know, somebody else can't interpret a rock for you or tell you that's not a rock. That's a tree because you can see it and say, no, that's a rock. Um, but in point of fact, creationists uh, uh, maintain that um, scientists misinterpret rocks. If you want to talk about rocks all the time. And my thought is uh, there are some interesting contradictions in, in scripture and I don't. I have not done the research to find out how they're dealt with uh, in fundamentalist thought. But you know, Genesis one, you know, God's warning Adam not to eat the fruit of the tree, and if he does, on that day he will die. But of course, he didn't. Um, yeah, he died spiritually. Well, and then, and then, like, you have to have Jesus to bring you back to life spiritually, so you can go to heaven. Okay, well, then that that's a nice explanation. There's also a um, very interesting tidbit. You go to church, you learn things. And I forget what gospel it's from, but the... Um, uh, Sadie the, will know. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. The, the story about Jesus uh, uh, telling the mob, you know, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Oh, I don't know which gospel that's in. My my gut says Matthew, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. Um, I, I used to know, and I've, I've uh, it just, it has slipped my brain. But uh, that story apparently was added by a medieval scribe in the 12th century. My understanding of the acceptance of it is that, um, of course, 
God inspired him to do that. But it doesn't exist in earlier texts. I am going to go immediately research the hell out of that because I've never heard that before. And that is fascinating. Say, so say that's true and that ends up in the King James Bible. How does that do with the King James onlyism with the preservation versus inspiration debate? That would not play nicely with that because a uh, part of that whole Oh, you know what? Actually, it would deal it would it would play well with the King James only who are plenary verbal double inspiration because the double inspirationalists believe that God inspired uh again the uh, the King James Bible translators. So I think they could extend that to a medieval scribe who added in a story. So is that like a Stephen Anderson? Uh, geez, is he double inspiration? Yes, he is. Okay, so that'd be NIFB Stephen Anderson. Uh, single inspirationalists would not be very happy about that because they believe that the Bible was only inspired once when it was originally, when it originally went from literally God's mouth to the scribe's ears. That's a little bit of a different conversation, but... Uh, I will report back to our listeners what I find out about that, because that's extremely interesting. Yes, please do. Yeah, um, so why don't we just uh, have a short uh, little conversation about carbon dating, and then we can wrap this up, okay? That sounds great to me. I wish you could see my, my eyes are like so big right now. I'm just wired on all this new information and coffee, but all this new information. Yeah. So last, uh, so uh, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about dinosaurs, I was talking about uh, carbon dating, explaining carbon dating to Sadie. And I, um, I explained the process of carbon dating properly, but I left out a couple of details. One is that basically carbon dating has, uh, wh- what did you say? It has a, a, a limit of like 50,000 years or something. Right. So uh, the difficulty is if, if you, if you think about it in terms of half lives, the half life of carbon 14 is about 5,700 years. And um, after nine half-lives, you're down to about 0.2% of the original carbon-14, and it just gets too hard to accurately detect. And so you're limited uh, in the number of half-lives that you can reliably use uh, because the material just gets too rare. So when you want to when you want to date something that's older than um, carbon can date, um, there are other um, pairs of elements. Uh, one of the most useful is potassium uh, 40, which uh, degrades to argon 40. And the reason that's particularly useful is because argon is a noble gas. It doesn't react with anything. So in fact, uh, argon is one of the, components in the atmosphere, and most of it is derived from uh, decay of potassium-40. So if you have a material, a rock, that um, has potassium in it, there's a certain amount of potassium-40 that is naturally present. That wouldn't change after the formation of that rock. And we're talking talking about rocks that um, solidify from a melt. Um, You can't radiometrically date uh, sedimentary rocks because uh, unless you find, if it's relatively recent, um, a a piece of carbon in it. So it probably wouldn't be a rock in 50,000 years. Um, But you can, you you know, if you can find um, a piece of uh, organic material in a sediment, uh, that can uh, let you date something. But then you have to worry about contamination, all this stuff. 
So most of the most of the hard dates that um, geology has come up with are derived from igneous rocks, rocks derived from molten material, where the composition uh, in the interior of the rock, uh, the non-weathered portion of it, um, is constant. And so the only thing that happens in that interior of the rock is the decay of radioactive materials. Um, potassium argon works particularly well because argon doesn't then react with anything else. It's a noble gas. It doesn't react at all. So it's so reliable. It's, relatively... it's reliably going to be what argon's going to be. Right. Um, and so that's relatively easy to count. So how does how big of a half life does uh, does uh, the potassium have? It's one point two billion years. Okay. So if you're looking at dinosaur bones, like you would have, you would that would be like within the measurable. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in fact, uh, potassium argon. Um, if you go back to what science says is the age of the Earth, four point five billion years. Um, that's only, I think, uh, four or five half-lives. No, it's, it's less than five. Um, four, four something half-lives. So um, it's definitely within the range of being able to uh, find enough of the original material um, to know how much there was that converted to argon. Well, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that, uh, that's exactly what I was about to say. Uh, Sadie, do you have anything else that you wanted to ask about the uh, carbon dating? Yeah, I have like like a like a very short answer, final question kind of deal. If I went to a nature place near me and picked up a rock, just like a random rock, how old is that rock? Like, is it like four billion years old, or is just the stuff that makes that rock up is four billion years old? Well, the stuff that makes you up. Um, Sadie is billions of years older than that. Um, like I said in the beginning, um, everything that isn't um, hydrogen or helium um, had to be forged in the heart of stars uh, that then exploded and spewed out these uh, new elements into the world. So you know, I have I have calcium atoms in me that were created ten billion years ago. But as far as a rock goes, uh, it could be anywhere from um, hundreds of thousands of years um, to uh, a few million years. Actually, hundreds of thousands of years is, you know, you pick up a rock in Hawaii and it could be um, 100 years old. It could be um, less than that. Mm -hmm. If you pull it right, if it came right out of a volcano, it could be three days old. Uh, They'll probably burn your hand, Gobby. <laughs> Lava yeah, you cools pretty quick. You know, it, it shoots uh, out, you know. Some of it does. Some of it does. Um, yes. Um, so it could be, it could be a, a brand new, um, a brand new rock um, if it's uh, from lava. The oldest rocks that have been successfully dated are on the order of 4.3 billion years. Uh, the, the, the difficulty is, because of plate tectonics, the surface of the Earth is constantly being um, recycled. And so in order to find really old rocks, you have to be really lucky. Um, it yeah. helps to know where to look, but um, some of the oldest rocks come from um, South Africa, from uh, northern Canada, um, Australia, and those are invariably either... Uh, igneous rocks, or in most cases, 
metamorphic rocks, rocks that have been cooked and pressurized um, and transformed from their original uh, nature to a, a new form. Okay, so a diamond is made out of carbon. Mm-hmm. And the more pure it is without inclusions, the more, the, the greater percentage of it is just carbon. Correct. Okay, so I have a diamond ring that belonged to one of my grandmothers. I know that the diamond was mined in Africa. I know that it was mined in the very late 40s or early 50s. So the carbon in my diamond ring is 10 billion years old? Um, you know, that's that's, that's just a, a, a wild stab. Um, considering how many atoms of carbon there are in that ring, which is um, a, a number so big I don't even want to think about it, um, you could have carbon in there that's um, 10 billion years old, 12 billion years old, 8 billion years old, um, uh, maybe even 5 billion years old. Um, and when, when, what would be a wild stab at when that particular rock, that particular diamond took a form as a, as like what we call a diamond? So, um, that's something I don't know. Um, that diamond came from, uh, a particular, uh, rock formation in South Africa called Kimberlite. And um, I, I really am clueless as to how old it might be. It was probably mined from pretty deep. So, uh, you know, just as a guess, you're looking at when that diamond formed um, from the carbon uh, it was, uh, that was deposited. It's only, you know, it's millions of years, uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. I don't know. I really don't know the age of Kimberlite. I am. That gives me something else to Google. I appreciate you taking a, taking a stab at it. I feel like I learned so much from this. And also I have so many more things to go and research and learn. My mind is like, my mind is completely blown well, you know, Sadie, that's actually I'm so happy. Um, that's actually one of the things that you can take almost as a gift is this um, is this blank slate of information that uh, is continually jostling and dislodging um, stuff that you thought you knew. Uh, that's a wonderful state to be in. It's unsettling, but it's a wonderful state. And I have to say, um, the work that uh, you and Gavi are doing, uh, I think, is um, is absolutely fabulous. Thank um, you so much. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. It's it's really, uh, in large part, the, the reason I agreed to come on um, is because it, it's work that needs to be done. Well, thank you so much. And, and thank you, of course, for giving up your Saturday morning to hang out with us and listen to me incredulously talk about science. <laughs> I have enjoyed this conversation so very much. It's been I incredible. Well. Thanks for coming on, man. Uh, David Jones, everybody. Thank you so much for, for, uh, for, for coming on our show. Um, absolute pleasure. Oh man. Okay. Well, I just want to say a thank you to everybody who listened to our episode. And I want to say an extra big thank you to David for coming on our show and like that was that was incredible that that was really great that was such a fun conversation that was such an informative conversation i have so many things to let seep through my brain like 
like coffee through coffee grounds and a coffee maker. I'm going to go make myself some more coffee so I can process all of this. That was amazing. My brain is overwhelmed in the best possible way. And we hope that you guys got as much out of that as we did. I learned so many new things. Um, and I was even raised understanding a lot of this stuff, but I learned so many new things about it. And it's just incredible. The, like that thing about the lava and the, the magnetic field. I didn't know that. That well, was looking at things from a different perspective is, is sometimes really helpful, often really helpful. And I hope that this will give our listeners uh, things to research as well. And I hope they list, they enjoyed uh, listening to me have my mind blown repeatedly. It was <laughs> it was so, so good. much new information, and my brain feels tingly and numb from how much information I have just absorbed. All right, so uh, we're gonna wrap this one up. Oh, man, that was so good. Uh, if you want to follow the podcast, uh, you, you know we're gonna have um, on Instagram a lot of the visuals from that conversation so like visualizations visualizations of like these fossils of like what the inside of the earth looks like uh see if we can find a picture of that lava thing um but, but yeah go to our instagram our instagram is at leaving eden podcast uh also our uh facebook is leaving eden podcast go follow our twitter at leaving eden pod uh you can join our facebook group which is going to be facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus our subreddit is reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus you can join our patreon which is going to be patreon.com slash leaving eden podcast sadie would you like to plug your social media yeah you can follow me on instagram at sadie carpenter music you can follow me on twitter at hell yes sadie and you can follow me on tiktok at sadie carpenter one and you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Clubhouse at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. And once again, thank you all for so, so much for tuning in. Uh, we had a great time, and we love you so much. Bye-bye. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.